Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. This past legislative session, Medical Aid in Dying was passed and allows physicians to assist patients by giving prescriptions for ending their lives if they have a terminal illness and documented less than six months to live. There are a lot of rules and protections surrounding this legislation, and some people don't feel this is something they would ever want to participate in, both in the physician side and also the patient side as well. Kat West, Compassion and Choice's National Director of Policy and Programs, is with us in the studio, and we're going to talk about what this bill really means for the people in Hawaii and the experiences that other states have had that can certainly help us to learn how to handle this when this treatment is available. That's coming up January 1 of 2019. So thank you, Kat, for coming into the studio today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, there's a lot of myths that I think probably are things that or their explanation for why we didn't have this legislation pass in the past. And, you know, some things were definitely taken care of in other states' legislative efforts. But what are some of the things that, in your experience, because you've worked on this in several different locations, what are some of the common misperceptions that people have about passing or even implementing a bill like this? Sure. So medical aid in dying is a medical practice that, only eligible eligible people are able to partake of. And if someone has to be terminally ill, they have to have uh, six months or less to live. They have to be mentally competent, and they have to be an adult in order to make a request of their doctor for a prescription. Uh, and it has been a law in Oregon for 20 years now, which is great um, for those people who um, – do make a request. But some of the myths uh, that we hear that we love to dispel is that um, you do have to be eligible in order to make a request. Not anybody can get a prescription for medical aid in dying. It's actually a very um, narrow subset. Um, And uh, you also um, have to go through a process. It's actually not a very easy process. Uh, th- right now in Hawaii, when the law goes into effect on January 1st, uh, there are you have to make at least two requests, a first request and a second oral request, a written request, and there has to be a 20-day waiting period in order to get the prescription. So it's not like January 1st, somebody's going to come in and say, I want this, give it to me today. They have to first meet some fairly stringent criteria. I know some of the misperceptions that I had heard about is that, you know, this is a way that people who might have an intellectual disability might be able to access this medicine. And by definition, if you don't have competency to make your own medical decisions, that wouldn't happen. That's correct. Um, one of the criteria, you have to have mental capacity to make your own health care decisions. And this also includes people with advanced dementia. Because if you have dementia, by definition, you don't have the capacity in most scenarios, if it's severe enough, to have that ability to decide on something and fully understand the implications and make a decision you're not necessarily competent to do so. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Because the whole gist of medical aid in dying is that the person who is dying is the person who's in control and stays in control the entire time through the request and when they self-ingest the medication. And so they have to have that mental capacity in order to make the request um, and to stay in control of the situation the entire time. 
And you just mentioned something else that bears repeating, which is you have to be able to ingest this. So this is not physicians who are giving intravenous medications to people in their homes. This is not any sort of other person administering it. This is someone who has the ability to take, this is in a pill form, and take this and swallow it and do it on their own. This is not what we saw many, many years ago when people were having someone physically do this for them. Right. Um, This is not euthanasia. Uh, This is medical aid in dying. And one of the core safeguards is that the medication has to be self-administered or self-ingested by the patient um, herself or himself. And it is usually the patient is at home surrounded by loved ones, and they are able to take the medication. Uh, They usually fall asleep within five to 20 minutes and then slowly uh, pass away, usually within an hour or so after that. So what medication are we talking about? Uh, Well, there's not just one medication, just like there's not one medication for blood pressure. Uh, There are several medications that's chosen uh, by the doctor and with the patient's um, uh, consent, obviously. Uh, The most common medication right now is a medication called Cicobarbital. And it comes in pills. Um, It's uh, mixed with, uh, you open the pills up, it's mixed with about four ounces of water. And then uh, often people like to do chasers um, after they drink the medication, uh, maybe a chaser of their favorite liqueur, something like that. Because it tastes bad? Yeah, it's it's bitter. um, So it's not something that would be um, accidentally ingested by any means. Um, So, yeah, people do like to take a, a chaser of something sweet afterwards. Now, you mentioned that it's been available in Oregon for many years. And looking at the statistics, the number of people that have requested prescriptions, it's not everyone that requests a prescription that uses it. What are the percentages of people who actually wind up administering it themselves after they have made a request? Sure. That's a great question. So we know that about uh, a third of people who make the request and obtain a prescription don't actually end up using it. Uh, A lot of people make the request uh, for the sense of peace and the comfort that it brings them. Uh, They will leave it at the pharmacy until they might need it. Um, A lot of people look at it like an insurance policy in case their suffering, their pain gets so bad and uh, let's say hospice can't control it, which is rare, but it does happen. And then they have that uh, prescription waiting and ready for them if they need it. So you mentioned hospice because one of the things I found quite unique is when you looked at some of the experiences in Oregon, once they allowed this medical aid in dying to be available to individuals, the numbers of hospice referrals went up. Mm -hmm. This was not something that was in competition with hospice, but rather used in conjunction and with the cooperative effort with hospice organizations. That's right. Uh, What we found is uh, when a state authorizes medical aid in dying, it actually improves end-of-life care across the spectrum. And we found that uh, hospice utilization goes up. In fact, 90% of people who end up uh, requesting and ingesting medical aid in dying are on hospice already. And to get into hospice, you also need to have a terminal illness and have less than six months to live. 
However, the competency issue, if you know you don't necessarily, if you don't understand your medical condition and you have an advanced dementia, you could still be in hospice, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to have this additional medical aid in dying provided for you because of that issue of competency. Exactly. Which I think is one of the safeguards that a lot of people were looking for. You know, the other myth that I like to sort of discuss out in the open is not everybody has to believe in this. Certainly not all physicians need to and not all patients need to. Some people have very strong religious thoughts against it. Some people have very strong professional thoughts against it or ethical stances. And everyone's opinion can be respected. No one is being forced to participate. That's right. And that's also what you've seen in other states as well. Yep. And every single state that's authorized medical aid in dying, uh, of course, if uh, the patient has to request it, it has to be voluntary. And for all of the providers, the doctors, it's also voluntary. Uh, in Hawaii, uh, I'm so glad and that the law has passed, and congratulations to all the Hawaii residents, because a poll was done in 2016 that actually showed that 80% of Hawaii residents supported medical aid in dying. And um, now that the the law is about to go into effect, we are about to launch um, a really massive education campaign across the islands. Well, we'll talk about more about the education campaign in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I'm here with Kat West, Compassion and Choices National Director of Policy and Programs. And today we're trying to explore the details and what's going to be up and coming with the legislative passage of medical aid in dying. When we come back, we'll talk some more about what this educational campaign is going to mean for you. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ulupono Initiative, Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working, and iDoctors Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Kat West. She is Compassion and Choice's National Director of Policy and Programs, and she's here in the islands to help us with the implementation of the Medical Aid in Dying Act that recently passed in the legislature. Now, we just talked about the fact that this is going to be voluntary participation. Certainly not all patients need to feel that they should be compelled or have to do anything along these lines. Not all physicians should be feeling as though they're compelled or people are going to ask them for something that they don't feel comfortable with. So for that aspect of it, I think we've made it fairly clear that people can choose if they want to be a provider. So let's talk about some of the logistics. When you talk about this education campaign, part of it is to explain what this act entails. And the other part of it is, I'm sure, to educate the public. What should you do if you're a physician and you, you come to them? They don't participate in this program. And respectfully, it is so okay if someone doesn't feel they want to. How do we educate the patients who are dealing with terminally ill conditions, where they can go. Mm -hmm. So the hope is, is that uh, patients are informed and empowered around the new rights that they have under the law. They do have a right now to request a prescription uh, from their doctor if they're eligible. Uh, and hopefully their doctors want to honor their request. They don't have to, as we mentioned, this is voluntary, but hopefully they do want to uh, respect their patient's self-autonomy um, and honor their requests. And so uh, Compassion Choices is going to launch the Hawaii 
Access Campaign. And as I mentioned, it is a massive education campaign. It's multilingual. Uh, we are going to be doing lots of public and uh, community education around people's rights around all end-of-life care, including medical aid and dying. We're also going to be educating doctors. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, lots and lots of uh of outreach, uh, webinars, uh, conferences, uh, going to hospitals, speaking to doctors, um, you know, at their place of practice. Um, and also, we're going to be providing lots of technical assistance to hospitals and hospices, because what we found is that uh, if hospices and hospitals adopt policies, pretty transparent policies, around medical aid and dying. Um, it lets the patients know where their health system stands, and it also supports the doctors in, in practicing medical aid and dying. And so if a patient went to their doctor and after thought the doctor declined to practice, uh, we're hoping that hospitals uh, have this policy in place where there's this internal referral system and where the patient transfers care, truly transfers care, to a new medical team that will be able to honor their end-of-life care choices. Now, what you've seen in Oregon, if someone says, okay, I want to see Dr. So-and-so, and they, I want to continue to see them even though I may want this medical aid in dying medication to be prescribed and they don't feel comfortable doing it. Does that mean that they have to leave that provider's care to get a prescription? Or could there be something set up where there could be a physician who can look at the medical record, interview with the patient, follow all the protocols and all of the requirements, and be able to provide this prescription, but not have to replace their provider that the patient may want to continue to see. Has that happened? Have we been able to set that up yet? Well, ideally, uh, a, d a doctor will honor their own patient's um, choices. In a perfect world. In a perfect world. It's going to work out great. <laughs> and then in the reality world that we live in where, you know, not everything works out the best all the time, how do we set that up? Because, you know, I would want to, if one of my colleagues felt very strongly against this, I would want to respect my colleague's belief. And if a patient came to see me and they met all of the parameters, I would want to feel like I could prescribe that patient a medication. And if they still wanted to see their previous doctor and or me either together or they wanted to continue to go back to their other provider, I want to make that option available to the patient because respectfully, it's a there's a pretty pretty standard analysis that you have to do, written request, oral request, wait 20 days, have this certified, have psychological counseling. You kind of have to go through this checklist and, in, and unless you fix or you get everything done on the checklist, you really can't get the prescription. But once you do you may still want to go see your other provider. And that's, I, I think that should be okay. I want to make sure that's available. Is that something that's available in some of the other states you've worked with? In the other states, what normally happens is that the patient actually does they transfer, transfer the care. care. Okay. Right. And uh, I'm sure it's done a little bit of both ways, but the law is really designed that you're getting you know, your end-of-life care, medical aid and dying through your your medical team, your own medical team, and that you're not just handed off 
to another doctor for this piece of it. That's really not what it's designed to be. Uh, what we're really trying to do is to have medical aid and dying uh, normalized and integrated into the standard of care and so that uh, doctors aren't just prescribing um, medication for medical aid and dying and then uh, having the patients go back somewhere else. Uh, so in other states, uh, the patient does actually truly transfer. Which, I mean, is is welcome to have happen. Mm-hmm. I, I never want patients to feel like if they see a provider who doesn't believe in this, that they can't get it mm-hmm. unless they leave the provider. I mean, I want it to be a little more open. You know, years ago, before we had dispensaries for medical marijuana, there were only certain physicians who were able to prescribe that. And at that time, it truly was a prescription. And there was this whole blue card process. And there's this whole other way that it would happen. And so you would have providers who would say, okay, I certify you have a diagnosis. I will just do this aspect of it. And then patients would still see me for the management of their other medical conditions because we had to separate it out like that for a variety of reasons and logistics and legality, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see. Maybe we'll be able to find a way to be more collaborative and cooperative. We don't know. We have till January to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the other challenges? You know, the other thing that I think the legislation did address is how this affects insurance. And I don't mean your health insurance per se, but I mean things along the lines of your personal life insurance Mm -hmm. and other things like that. That's one of the questions that I think might come up is if you choose medical aid in dying, does that invalidate any life insurance or any other policies you have? And in the other states you've worked with, that has actually been answered. Correct. And the answer is absolutely not. So no matter what your choices are around uh, medical aid and dying, whether you make the request and don't get a prescription or if you do and you ingest, it does not affect your life insurance at all. Which is something people were concerned about, mm-hmm. you know, and justifiably so, and, and it's something that we need to address. So I was pretty happy to see that it was included in the legislation, as it has been for other states as well. They've kind of looked at this, sort of put some foresight into it and said, what are all the parameters? So the good news is that we don't have to be first. I mean, it's nice to be first, but we don't have to be the ones to invent the wheel. We get to follow some of the things that other states have done. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come back, Kat West and I are going to talk about some of the other things that we could potentially proactively look at and find ways to address here in the islands before we even have to worry about some of the things that might have been issues with other, other states that have adopted this legislation. We'll be right back after this quick break. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Compassion and Choices National Director of Policy and Programs, Kat West. And we're talking a little bit today about what it's going to be like when we implement the Medical Aid in Dying Bill, which has been passed by the legislature. And the date for that is January 1, 2019. So we do have a little bit of time, which is good, because I like the idea we're going to provide some education and help people to feel more comfortable with this as an option that they can choose, both in the patient aspect and on the provider aspect. What are some of the other areas that have been addressed in other states that we probably don't have to worry about because they've kind of worked through that issue that we can maybe take a look at their experience and utilize it to help us with our own? Yeah, and it is really nice. Uh, Hawaii is now the eighth jurisdiction 
to authorize medical aid in dying, uh, 20% of the American population is now covered under a state uh, that has medical aid in dying. So that's really nice. Um, so we have a lot of lessons learned from the other states, which is great. Um, one of them is around medication. And for uh, a while, uh, medication for medical aid in dying w- uh, was sometimes difficult for pharmacists to to stock and to be able to dispense. Uh, but now there has uh, there have been uh, alternative protocols developed around the medication, and the medication is now um, very easy for pharmacists to get in stock. So there there's not a shortage. Um, the medication can also be mailed. Um, which is very nice. Um, in uh, one state, Washington, the medication is not allowed to be mailed by the pharmacy to the person's home. And if you have to sign for it. It's not just left on your doorstep, but you have to sign for it. Um, and that caused, a, it still causes a great deal of problems. These are dying people, don't have a lot of time or energy, uh, you know, their caregivers are taking care of them full time. And so, um, the mailing, especially for people who lived in rural areas, um, was of great concern. But Hawaii, it, the medication is able to be mailed to the person's home, and that's one great solution. That sounds that sounds like something I wouldn't have thought of, that when you realistically have this in practice, oh, we never thought, can we mail it? So I'm glad that we've learned from you guys that that is something that is mm-hmm. available to people. Now, I know there was one state in... in I think it was I think it was prior to passing this that had a residency requirement that you had to own property in that particular state. Is that still the case or is that not necessarily something that is required? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um in Hawaii it is required that you ha- do have to be a resident in order to make this request. Um all of the states right now that have these laws do have that residency requirement. Um, it's interesting. There's a, actually a, a bill in New York that's going, it's wending its way through the legislation right now, does not have a residency requirement. Uh, and here's just a little aside. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, the Oregon bill was actually written 25 years ago. So it's a relatively old bill. And when it was written, of course, it was the first one in the entire nation. And so the drafters threw everything into it they could think of. Like it was the kitchen sink, you know, everything was thrown in there. But then they thought that um, after the law was proved up, it was proven safe, that the it would just go like the all the um, criteria, not the criteria, all the um, safeguards would go. Um, it would just become part of practice, right? All the regulations. Um, they didn't realize that every other state was going to copy theirs. it. Yes. Um, in fact, they, copy it. they thought that would not happen. They thought it would just become a medical practice like every other. Um, so the residency requirement is one of those old artifacts from 25 years ago that just keeps popping up in, in each state. Well, and I can almost see that, you know, you talked about trying to stay with your provider. You wouldn't necessarily want people to go to another state, get a medication, then go back to their home state and kind of be in that phase where they weren't necessarily following with a provider who could help them. But 
You know, it's it's interesting because I think that really alludes to the fact that maybe we need to look at not just what we've passed in the legislature, but also look at how other states are looking at the lack of residency requirement in New York, but maybe even revise what we have already. I mean, Oregon, we're all looking to you guys out there in Oregon if you're at all listening to HPR. So... So do that. And trust me, we will copy you. We tend to follow. So that is one of those things where we could, if they were able to look at it in that domain, we could take a look at it in other areas. Are there other things that over time have been learned? I think there's probably initially a bit of a bit of worry. There's change. Something is different. People are uncertain. People are unsettled. And then after it becomes part of the routine, everybody sort of comes along and says, yeah, okay, I get this now. Is that similar to what you've seen in other states? Absolutely. And that will happen in Hawaii as well. Uh, We call it a ramp-up period. So there's a couple years where uh, patients are learning about their rights. There's a couple years where the doctors are learning about the practice. Uh, More and more patients will ask. More and more doctors will learn. And then just like in Oregon, um, it's not con- even considered controversial anymore. It's just part of of the end-of-life care spectrum, just like hospice, just like uh, anything else that might be out there. Uh, and it's interesting. You will see the evolution here in Hawaii as well. How long does that generally take? A couple of years? Well, yeah, it's a couple years, and uh, our experience is the first year, um, there's there's a lot of questions, um, and we do our best to, you know, help answer those questions. Um, and then by year two, things are starting to settle in, and by year three, it's it's pretty much, you know, okay, this is the lay of the land, and this is how, you know, this is just part of the end-of-life options, and one thing that's been really fascinating for for us to watch as states do authorize medical aid in dying is that the practice is conceptual for doctors until their very first patient makes the request. And then it becomes real because this is a beloved patient of theirs, someone they care about, someone they have a duty to help. And then they have to think about medical aid in dying. And that's why we uh, are going to run a, it's called an Ask Your Doctor campaign. And we're going to ask Hawaii residents who think that this is an important option that they might at some point want um, to ask their doctors now about whether the doctor would honor their choice. Um, And then this will allow the doctor to think about it. And then on January 1st, uh, hopefully, be ready to honor any of their patients' decision-making. Well, and I think the other important part is to follow the evolution, you know, because there are some early adopters and there are some people that might be late adopters. And once it occurs, once you have an individual who has done this, you might change your comfort level and you might say, okay, or you find out other colleagues or, you know, doctors get together and, you know, the things we talk about might include this topic. Hey, how do you feel about it? What are your thoughts? And I guess my main thought is I want everyone to feel as though their opinion is respected and no one is trying to convince them to do something they don't feel comfortable with, both on the provider side and on the patient side, and that the whole idea is to add an extra option. 
give them a choice. That's, you know, the name of compassion and choices. You know, that's <laughs> the choice part of it really does work, yeah. you know, so that you give people that option and allow them the decision making power to really choose for themselves what they feel is going to be best. Now, compassion and choices, you're going to be coming, you come every few weeks or so, you're going to still be a presence here. And if people have questions, they'll be able to find you, you'll be back every four to six weeks or so. Yes. So for a couple uh, of years, for a couple of years, I'll be back um, very frequently. But um, even more importantly, we are hiring a Hawaii state manager who is going to be based on Oahu, and he'll be traveling to all of the islands, uh, working with the public, working with doctors, working with medical um, facilities. Fantastic. That is very good to know. Well, I want to thank you, Kat, for coming in and sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Well, this is so much fun. Thank you. We will have to do it again. Kat West is the Compassion and Choices National Director of Policy and Programs. And if you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And we will see you next week as we talk about more health topics and bring things to everyone's knowledge so we can all stay healthier here in the islands. Thanks for listening. Thank you.